the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday show, because it's Tuesday, we can get right into the questions. So let me first tell you how to call, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Uh, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just push the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. 340-9585. Remember, we prefer your calls uh, just because you're more interesting than I am. Uh, because it's Tuesday, we don't have anything going on except... Uh, Calvary Kids Bible School here at the church during the morning hours. It's a great time. We have so many kids around here. It's not too late if you want your kids to be involved. It costs absolutely nothing, and the kids are having an absolute blast learning about and being with Jesus. Let me go to my first question while we wait for any phone calls. This one is from Kirby from our email inbox. Uh, Pastor Ron, would you please explain Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 in context? If I read the verse by itself, one gets the feeling that it was Noah's fault the flood came, uh, that if he'd not obeyed God, the world would not have been condemned. I know that's not the case. So what was the writer of Hebrews trying to say at that point? Well, Kirby, a couple of things. First, we know that that uh, the context is, is everything when you're reading um, a scripture. And this is a, uh, what we call the, the hall of faith. Uh, these are the Old Testament saints who will all of see them, uh, see all of them in heaven. Uh, these are men and women who are being commended for their faith, even small faith in difficult times. I always think of Rahab, the harlot. Um, she demonstrated great faith. To us, it seems like a little thing. But, but in a world where she would have been risking everything to protect the spies was a big thing. So again, context, these are all commendations. Hebrews 11, verse 7 says very simply, uh, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Um, Kirby, when you look at that sentence, it says so much. And Noah is one of my favorite Old Testament characters, um, simply because he believed God's word when he was told about things that the world hadn't seen yet. Most notably, the rain. There's going to be rain. There's going to be a flood. Um, the world had never seen such a thing. And yet we realize that as Christians, no, Noah wasn't a Christian, but he is a believer and is now a Christian. But remember this, and this is important. We walk by faith and not by sight. And Noah walked by faith. He didn't say, well, God, what do you mean rain? I've never seen rain before. And he built an ark. He did it over a period of 120 years. His faithfulness, his perseverance, 
especially in the face, Kirby, of, of, of the, the, the hostility he would endure, the, the mockery that would be his, simply because he was a preacher, according to Peter, of righteousness. And because he was a preacher of righteousness, he believed God and then declared the message that judgment was coming. Now, the second part of this, by his faith, he condemned the world. It simply means that his faith was a living, breathing example um, to, the, to the entire world of his day that there was a God and this God had a plan and they could escape the plan by believing. All they had to do was get in the ark. And for 120 years, Noah built. And for 120 years, Noah preached. I always like to think of how much fun uh, it must have been for him, at least at first. But then it would get tiring and tedious. Pretty soon, all of the other people would be saying, oh, poor Mrs. Noah, she's married to a nut. Or, or oh, her, his kids. I always wonder if his kids were bullied. Oh, you're married. Or, or your dad is that religious nut. But Noah just faithfully kept building and kept preaching. And then one day God said to get in the ark. Noah got in, his family got in. The ark was sealed. Think for a moment what it must have sounded like to Noah and his family when the rain began and the floods began to pile up. They would hear the screams. They would hear the pounding on the ark. Let us in, let us in. But it was too late because the ark was sealed by God. Now, there's a couple of pictures there, and I'll get to our next um, question in just one minute, if you can be patient with me. Um, This is a picture of you and me. We're going to be sealed by God during the Great Tribulation. We're going to be in heaven as Christians. Noah represents, it symbolizes the Jews. They're going to be preserved through the Great Tribulation. Wouldn't you rather be in heaven when it all starts? By that, all I mean is if you're listening to this program and you're not a born-again Christian, Jesus is coming soon. The flood of judgment, Psalm 29 says, is about to descend on this world at any time. And you can avoid it by simply believing in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Kirby. Let's go to line one and Jimmy in San Antonio. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yeah, I heard this uh, uh, scripture yesterday. It's Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Who is that woman that is standing on the moon, crying, <laughs> having a baby? Who, 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 is, who is, uh, what is that referring to? Do you, do you know? Yes, I, I sure do, Jimmy. Thank you very much. Revelation chapter 12, the first couple of verses, and there has been so much uh, diversity of opinion on this over the years. If you know the... Um, Old Testament symbolism, if you know the Old Testament stories, um, we don't have to guess what's going on here. Uh, it says in verse 1, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. The book of Revelation doesn't make us guess what's going on uh, because it's a sign. We know that what follows is symbolic. It's not literal. John isn't seeing a real woman, a real dragon, or even a real child in this passage of Scripture. But he's going to see these things as symbols representing other things. So this portion of Scripture is is an amazing portion of Scripture. Uh, and we're told very clearly what the first two symbols are. Uh, the woman is described in celestial images. Jimmy, for the rest of the audience, let me read the, the verses. Here's the sign. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Um, Every symbol in Revelation is explained somewhere else in Scripture so we can eliminate some things. Uh, There are many Roman Catholics in particular who say that the woman in verse 1 has to be Mary. Um, After all, they'll say she gave birth to Jesus, so it's got to be her. But that's not what we're told here. Remember, this is a sign 
That means this woman giving birth to Christ symbolizes something bigger than Mary. Now, over the years, there's been a lot of uh, craziness. Mary, Mary, Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, claimed that she was the woman of Revelation chapter 12. I laugh because there were people foolish enough to believe it. Um, there are some Christians who have, I think, a poor view, a wrong view of eschatology, who claim that the woman of Revelation chapter 12 is the church, but it cannot be so. Jesus gave birth to the church, not the other way around. So the woman then has to be the nation of Israel from whom the Christ would come. In the Old Testament, Israel is often compared to a woman, specifically even a woman in the pangs of labor. But we have even more proof from Genesis chapter 37. All we have to do is look at the story about Joseph's dream. Genesis chapter 37, verse 9 says, Then he had another dream. This is Joseph. He told it to his brothers. I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brother, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I bow, and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? So in the Old Testament, remember, these are all symbols that come from Old Testament imagery. The Old Testament interprets the sun as Jacob, Joseph's father. The moon is identified as his mother, Rachel. So we know for sure what that is. So that's what the first two verses are all about, Jimmy, in in Revelation. Uh, Let me give you um, um, uh, an opportunity if you want to look into the whole chapter. It's a great chapter, and there's other symbols, of course, the, the symbol of Jesus for sure. But there are other symbols. You can go to our website, calvarysa.com, and either listen to the studies I did in Revelation chapter 12, or you can actually, my notes are available online uh, in Revelation chapter 12 as well. So I hope that helps, Jimmy. Thank you very, very much for your call. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is my next question from Jennifer. Um, Oh, I know, Jennifer, I'm sorry. I wanted to touch this at the start of the program today because I I didn't uh, have enough time to deal with it. Jennifer's question from yesterday was, King Saul had the Holy Spirit but was rejected by God. And then she says, I thought if you had the Holy Spirit, you were secure in your faith. Uh, What I didn't have time to say, Jennifer, yesterday was God wants you to be secure in your faith. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14 says that we've been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. In other words, we don't have to worry about whether or not we're saved. God himself is guaranteed it if we're truly born again. Now, that's between you and the Lord, but if you're truly born again, you should have no doubt. In King Saul's case, I explained yesterday that the Holy Spirit had a completely different relationship with the Old Testament characters than he does with us. He lives in us. We're secure. He came up on on them in certain times for certain feats uh, of strength or certain victories in war uh, or, or abilities to prophesy. But it wasn't a permanent relationship. Uh, that's why David, though the Spirit came upon him from time to time, he still had to hear from God via the prophet Nathan and others that were with him. So um, it's just a completely different relationship. We who are New Testament believers, Jennifer, um, if we're really born again, we have the Holy Spirit and he can never be taken away. I love that Jesus in his disciples' most troubling time, after telling him, don't let your hearts be troubled, trust in God, trust also in me, a little bit later in the Upper Room Discourse, he would say to them, he would say, Uh, It's good for you that I go away. Now, none of the disciples believed that. How could it be good? We trusted you. We followed you. We know you're the Christ, and now you say they're going to kill you. They couldn't understand that. We have a hard time understanding it 2,000 years later. But here's what Jesus said. He said, it's good. Here's why it's good. Because if I go, I will send another me. That's what he said. I will send another the Greek word alos, of the same substance, but a different physicality. The Holy Spirit, and he will be with you till the ends of the age. So it was simply Jesus announcing that he was going to do a new thing in a new way. But make 
mis- no mistake, um, if you have the Holy Spirit, if you're born again, not speaking in tongues, not in anything else, if you've surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, people say, well, how do I know it's real? Well, do you live for him or do you live for you? That's the best way I know. Jesus said, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. And there's no security issues for the man or the woman who's abiding in Christ. The insecurity, Jennifer, that so many of us experience comes when we are not walking with Jesus. And I think that's intentional. That's the Holy Spirit saying, wait a minute, you say you're a Christian? Walk with Christ. It's really that simple. If you abide in Jesus, you never have any doubts about your eternal security. Jennifer, I hope that uh, makes um, kind of finishes what I didn't have the time to say at the end of the program yesterday. Here's an anonymous question from our mobile app. What is purgatory? Purgatory is a figment of the imagination of the Catholic Church. Anonymous, that's what it is. There's no such thing. There's no holding pen. There's no second chance. Uh, purgatory is a traditional teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. It was originally considered as a way of raising funds, indulgences. If they could convince people that their loved ones were in this holding pattern, if you do good things, if you give, we could build churches and maybe we could get your loved one out of this purgatory and into heaven. Uh, It simply doesn't exist. So it's a figment of the imagination of the Roman Catholic Church, and it has caused no end of difficulty. I may have told this story on the program before, but um, many years ago, I had a neighbor. In fact, just before we came to Texas, I had a neighbor. His name was Albert. Really, really nice guy. He was a a grocery store manager of a big grocery store in in, uh, Southern California. There was a news story one night about this Alpha Beta store manager who was being held at gunpoint all night long by a thief who broke in and he literally when the police came he tied a shotgun uh, taped a shotgun duct taped a shotgun around the guy's uh, stuck to his head so that if anything happened anybody tried to come in he was going to shoot him well uh, my friend Albert got out and I finally got a chance to talk to him a couple of days later and I said to him Albert I've been sharing Jesus with this guy he was a cradle Catholic I've been sharing Jesus with this guy for a long time and I said Albert while that shotgun was duct taped to your head, what were you thinking? Weren't you thinking that if I die, where am I going to go? He said, I couldn't think about anything else, Ron. And I said, so now are you ready to give your heart to Jesus? Here's what he said to me. His exact words. Because of purgatory and the chance that it's true, I still think I can live my life the way I want to here and hope to get in later. I said, so you're not ready even still? His answer was, no. And I don't know that he ever became a believer. Hard, hard things. That's the damage, Anonymous, that that ridiculous doctrine creates. Let's go to Seguin and talk to our friend Anthony. Anthony, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, how you doing, sir? I'm doing well, Anthony. You doing any better? I am doing so much better. You know, Good, praise the Lord. You, 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 uh, what you just said right now about uh, that thing messes up. Just, it's just, you know, it just messes people. It messes people up. Uh, you know, yep. those beliefs, religious beliefs, religion, legalism, it messes with people's head. I. I am on a mission to try, and I'm asking God. I said, Lord, uh, you help me because you took me out of this. And it's like, oh, my God, I can't even describe it. There's no adjective to describe what I feel or how I feel uh, with those. All I can say is blinders that, that were taken off, the religious blinders that were just taken off of me. And now I'm, I mean, I still have some issues with anxiety, but you know what? I'm getting them to the Lord, and I'm just saying, Lord, you know what? Your will be done. Your will be done in my life. Right now I'm reading the the book of Matthew, and just like Jesus said when he went to the cross, let your will be done, which brings me to my question. 
um, mm-hmm. I started reading the Bible. I want to read it from Matthew to Revelation. You know, I don't know if that's the correct way to start reading it, but I just want to read it. So I started in Matthew. And I was in Matthew 27, uh, verse... Um, man, my glasses are light. I need new glasses. I believe it's 52. And, then the, and the, if I can read it, it says, The tombs broke up, <laughs> broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, that was after the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Now, my question is, why do we not hear about these people? Uh, who are they? Do you know who they are? That uh, And it talks about them. If I'm reading it correctly, they resurrected. They, became, they came back to life. They went back into the city. But it doesn't say what they did, who they were, or am I reading it wrong? Could you answer no, that you, listen to it on the radio? Th- thank you, Anthony. Appreciate it very, very much. And, and to your other point before I answer this question, um, that's why Paul tells Timothy to watch his life and doctrine closely. Doctrine matters. It matters a great deal. And what we need to do is get our doctrine from a solid hermeneutic study of the scriptures before we start reading somebody else's systematic theology. What we need to do is read the Bible. Become familiar with it. I'm thrilled, Anthony, that you're going to be reading through the New Testament. Um, I, I hope and pray that you get challenged to read through the Old Testament as well. It's thrilling. Look for Jesus on every page. Um, but um, uh, let what the Bible says develop your systematic theology instead of viewing what the Bible says through a systematic theology that's already been developed. Also, uh, Anthony, the minute you said um, Matthew 27, I knew which verse the question was going to be about because uh, this is a question that everybody has, and Matthew's the only one that mentions such a phenomenon. Um, the New King James says the graves were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep or died were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Another translation talks about the righteous um, um, the, the graves were open and the righteous saints um, were, were, were raised to life. So this is a resuscitation rather than a resurrection uh, these people would live for a while longer, then they would die again. It's it's uh, the, the, the end of all men and women to die. Um, but this was a sign. This was a wonderful sign. Remember, when Jesus gave up his spirit, the earth turned dark and the ground shook, the earth split. The earthquake was so severe. And um, in this particular case, the graves were open. Now, because of the wording, Anthony, we don't know whether these were people from the community. You know, Jews used to bury people in family graves. And so in, in any particular grave, there would be a bunch of different bodies. The bones would be all that's left. Um, and and uh, in, uh, so, so there could be the remains of, of many family members that were there. Uh, all we know is that these were righteous people, saints, the New King James says, um, and we don't know anything else. We don't know what they did until the resurrection. Probably just worshipped God, but this was a sign to the world that these are people. Everybody would know who they were. People in Jerusalem, they would see them. Maybe it was Samuel. Maybe it was Samson. Maybe it was who knows who it was. But, but the people would know, and God would want them to know. Not only that, after the resurrection, they actually became evangelists. They appeared to many, and they would be declaring the glory of God, the righteousness of God, and they would be declaring the guilt for having put to death the Son of God. So it's a very, very vague passage of Scripture. And um, I- I've thought about this so much over the years, uh, and yet the truth is the other disciples or the other gospel writers mention nothing whatsoever about it. It is the only reference that we have. So there's always going to be, Anthony, some mystery surrounding it because we simply can't know for sure. Um, I s- sort of lean to, and, and there's because there's no other biblical evidence, 
I sort of leaned to the fact that these were well-known heroes of the Jewish faith from the past. We know Joseph's body, for example, was returned to Jerusalem. Um, so whoever it was, um, I favored that they were well-known saints from the stories in the Bible that we know about. But even if you believe that they're just people that that were really followers of God, uh, the, the people in Jerusalem would have known who they were. All I can say is I am certain that their um, witness, their evangelism was effective. And who knows, maybe, just maybe, this is the beginning of Acts chapter 2 when 3,000 people were saved on the very first day. Anthony, I hope we have a video replay of this when we get to heaven because that's the only way we're going to know for sure. Anthony, good to hear you're doing well. Thank you very much. May the... We've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the tuesday show i'm him ron arbaugh the pastor and i love that title not because it makes me special but because the work that god has given me to do is so special Here is a question that breaks my heart, and it's a question that we're all going to have to deal with a lot in the coming days and weeks and years, should Jesus tarry a little bit. Anonymous says, how would you respond to someone who says they're beginning to believe that homosexuality isn't a sin, that God couldn't possibly condemn people for loving someone from the same sex? The reason this breaks my heart is because this is a battle that's going on literally in every church. And here are the people. Here's the target audience. The enemy has has sort of singled people out. And there are a lot of them. People that maybe aren't walking really close with the Lord or people with really compassionate hearts that just can't fathom the idea that God would send somebody to hell or that hell is real, or that eternal torment is somehow just. And it's hard for people because their hearts are tender. There's some who simply don't care. They spend more time in the world than they do in God's Word. But this is a battle. And I predicted this five years ago, and I keep saying it. This is going to be one of the dividing lines that's going to determine who's a believer and who isn't a believer. Now, there's no way that you can read your Bible. If you just exegete your Bible, there's no way that you can come up with the conclusion that homosexuality is not a sin. Now, what we've got is a a lot of people who are gay, who claim to be Christians, who don't like being told that what they do is sin, and so they have justified by... Um, rewriting, really, or reinterpreting 2,000 years of church history. And they do it by saying, no, that refers to um, indiscriminate homosexual sex, and God's certainly against that, but committed monogamous relationships, uh, God is all for it, and he doesn't condemn people. God wants us to be happy. He wants us to be fulfilled. And we've got to decide who we believe. We've got to make that decision and stand. And the problem is the world is winning the PR war. It is becoming so commonplace that people that I know just a couple of years ago who would never have considered that homosexuality was anything other than a sin. It's in Galatians 5 and and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that people who live like that, among other sins now, homosexuality is not singled out. But it says very clearly that homosexuality, people that live like that, practice a lifestyle of that, will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
And what that means is when we find ourselves being convinced by this constant barrage of PR, the moment we tell somebody that, well, it's not a sin, God understands, we're causing them to stumble. Jesus said it's better for us to be thrown in a deep, dark ocean with a millstone tied around our bodies rather than to cause one of his little ones to stumble. We have the responsibility, Christians, of telling the truth. And the truth is they're winning the war. People who are closer to the things of this world, people who are closer to their emotions and to God's word, well, those are the people that are going to be won over. They're going to be convinced. I'm going to read just a couple of verses Romans chapter 1 because they knew God but didn't glorify him as God verse 21 says their thinking became futile their foolish hearts were darkened these are people who reject God although they claim to be wise they became fools And verse 24 in Romans 1 says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 26, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Now, there's no honest interpreter of the Bible. There is no hermeneutic that allows you to twist the meaning of that scripture. And every time, and please hear this, Anonymous, every time that we sort of slide away from what the Bible is very clear about, we're finding ourselves in a place where we can't support it scripturally. And so we have to support it emotionally. We look around now and we see so much open homosexuality people do it without being embarrassed without being ashamed they're loud and they're proud and they come out they demand rights now everybody should have the same rights until it comes to the right to redefine what marriage is or redefine what God's gift of sexuality to this world is truth is it's our responsibility to agree with Jesus Now, here's the question, Anonymous. Here's the problem that everybody has. But there are homosexuals who claim to love Jesus. If, in fact, you had somebody in your family, a son or a daughter, who came home and announced to you that they were going to move in with their boyfriend or their girlfriend, and I mean that in a heterosexual relationship, Isn't it true that we would say that's sin, you can't do it? And I don't know any Christian parent who wouldn't do that. I mean, any real Christian parent who would do that. No, don't move in together. You have to get married if this boy's a Christian, this girl's a Christian. You have to get married because God says you can't do it. Why is it that we don't keep the same rules in this matter of homosexuality? And the answer is because the world is cramming the PR down our throats. And Jesus is looking for men and women who are going to stand with him and stand for him. We have to realize it's not mean to tell somebody that if you live like this, you're not going to go to heaven. You would tell a drug addict that. You would tell a burglar that. You would tell a violent man or woman that. Why wouldn't we tell a homosexual that? We have to guard against our emotions. There's times we have to choose between what we know to be true and what we feel like we want to be true. 
And this is going to be a dividing issue if you're one of those people in this listening audience who's being slowly seduced by this world to re-examine beliefs that you've known to be true for your whole Christian life. The problem is you, it's not God. Now, Anonymous, one more thought here. People often say, well, God made them that way. No, he didn't. Any more than he made somebody else to be controlled by their sexuality, whether it's hetero or homosexual. Yet, if we live in a fallen world, yes, there are same-sex attractions. But Jesus said to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus didn't say, you can indulge yourself. And we live in a world that's made sexuality an idol. Truth is, we would tell anybody that having sex without being married is a sin. We need to tell that to the homosexual as well. And then finally, they're arguing, well, if we can't get married, and that's the way marriage was redefined, that was the basis upon the redefinition of marriage. They'd say, well, then we, can, we can't get married. We've got to get married so it's not sin. It's still sin. Men committed indecent acts with other men. Women exchanged the natural use of their bodies for the unnatural. And you can't reconfigure that. And for most of you who are leaning that way, you're getting more theology from the Internet, emotionally based arguments with no basis at all biblically, then you're getting your theology from the Word of God. We have to be firm. Anonymous, it breaks my heart. Every one of us is dealing with these issues. Let's go to Troy calling on line one from San Antonio. Troy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, how you doing? I'm doing well, Troy. Thank you. Um, my question is a little bit about uh, this morning's broadcast. Uh, it just had me thinking a little bit all day about when Christ took on pretty much carried our sin for us. He, be, he knew no sin, but he became sin. And mm-hmm. that transitioning from going to the garden, of course, all the way to the cross. Um, is there any indication in Scripture on exactly when he took on that sin? And before God, of course, had to turn away. And when he carried that sin as a man, can you go into a little bit of detail of maybe what he was feeling uh, emotionally and mentally, knowing that he knew no sin before? Yeah, Troy, I can, we can only try. We can't possibly imagine. Thank you very much, Troy. We, we, we can only uh, uh, try to imagine what Jesus was going through. Uh, let me deal with the first part because it's very straightforward. Uh, when Jesus was taking our punishment, um, the, 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 the price of our peace with God was his punishment. Isaiah 53. Um, as he was punished, he was satisfying the wrath of God, the holy wrath of a just God. And then when they put him on that cross for six hours, he was literally taking on the sin of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is what you quoted. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness or the perfection of God. It's a staggering verse to consider. And so on that cross, for those six hours, he was becoming sin. I always think, and try I do this very personally, I always imagine Jesus on that cross and the names that are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, which was created before the foundations of the world, those names are going before him. And this, and it didn't really happen this way, but, but, but I want this to be so personal to me that when he got to my name, Ron Arbaugh, then he cried out, it's finished. The debt is paid. That's what it means to tell us that it's a, an accounting term, paid in full. And I always imagine that right when he got to my name, he said, it's over. 
And that was the end of it. He gave up his spirit. Now, what did he feel? Now, this is impossible for us to imagine. You know, we look at sin so casually, Troy, in our church culture, to our shame, by the way. But it's like, well, it's a small sin. It doesn't really matter. God understands. We have a million excuses. But we can't imagine what pure holiness is. James and Peter and John would be the only three human beings who have any idea at all, and that's because they saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw his, his, his intrinsic holiness. And for that kind of holiness to become sin, I personally believe was the most difficult thing of all for Jesus. Far more difficult, infinitely more difficult than the physical punishment that he took far more difficult I believe that it was more difficult than the separation from his father now remember Jesus couldn't understand that separation because they were always together they were always one and there was a moment in time and space where the man Jesus was separated from his father why have you forsaken me and and, and that was hard but I believe harder still was the introduction of sin, sin that he so loathed, sin that was so foreign to him. I always imagine picking up a, 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 a bowl of dirt, mixing it with water and rocks, and somebody cramming it in your mouth. Well, for Jesus, sin was worse than that, infin- infinitely so. And so we, cannot, we, we don't have imaginations big enough to understand. But when we get to heaven... And Jesus, who will bear those scars forever, when he shows us those scars, I think that's the first time we'll get it. When we see him in all of his holiness. So, Troy, it's, it's, I, I think about this very thing a lot. Uh, Easter, I, I always mention it. Being alone, but becoming sin was the filthiest thing imaginable for God who didn't understand that. You know, God knows everything. We, we have a habit of saying that. But let me tell you something. He didn't know what being separated from his father was like, and he didn't know, he couldn't have known what sin was like until he experienced them, and what he was thinking was pure horror. I think that was the anticipation of the Garden of Gethsemane. So, Troy, that's the best I can do. That's all we can do is think about it because we're simply not told. I don't think until we get to heaven we're going to know what that's all about. Thank you for the call. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 if you have any more questions or calls. Here is a question. I'm sorry, here's a question from Wallace. He says, I have a friend who says he's a believer but doesn't believe in any of the miracles Jesus did. Can he really be saved? Uh, Wallace, no. He can't be saved. Um, You know, the Sadducees didn't believe in the miraculous. Uh, The Sadducees didn't believe in in the resurrected life. They didn't believe in life after death. This world was all we had. That was behind some of the choices they made. And while they claimed to be Jews going to heaven, they, they weren't. Um, if you have a Jesus who doesn't do miracles, then he's not the Jesus of the Bible. Uh, on Sunday, Wallace, I'm going to be teaching from Luke chapter 5, and we're going to see uh, a couple of miracles in just the very first, I think I'm going to do the first 11 verses, we're going to see a couple of miracles. If those miracles didn't really occur, then we can't depend on anything Jesus said to us in our Bibles. I don't know why it's so hard for people to believe in the miraculous, but remember, we're to walk by faith and not by sight. And so often, we Christians, we want to see things, you know, show me, Lord, and I'll believe. And Jesus always responds the same way, no, believe, and then I'll show you. And the miracles were to witness of his deity. The fact that the blind were given sight and the lame could walk and lepers were cleansed that Lazarus was raised from the dead. The Old Testament scriptures prophesied that this is what the Christ would do. 
and in particular all of the Gospels, but in particular the Gospel of John is nonsensical. So Wallace, you cannot believe in Jesus who isn't God, who did these miracles, and be saved. You can believe in somebody named Jesus, but it's not Jesus of Nazareth, a stepson of Joseph, a son of Mary. So pray for your friend. Here is a question from, oops, a caller who wanted to add to Troy's comment. Hebrews 12 tells who the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Um, yeah, yeah, the Hebrews 12 tells us that we're the joy that was set before him for sure, and he endured the cross. Um, but but as he was, the question specifically that Troy asked was, uh, to this particular caller I'm responding now, uh, was what, what he was thinking when he was becoming sin. And uh, I think the reference was to the horror of that as opposed to just he was thinking of me uh, when he was being beaten, when he was uh, being uh, mocked and ridiculed and spat upon. Um, yeah, he did that because he considered you and me worth it. But I just... Well, that what you said is true. I just don't think that was the emphasis of Troy's question. Here is a question from Bart. If you could buy only one Bible commentary, what would it be? Bart, that's the easiest question in the world for me to answer. I would buy the new international Bible commentary series with F.F. F. Bruce as the editor. Uh, it is a Bible commentary series F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, uh, if I'm correct, he did three of them. Uh, he did Romans, he did um, Acts, and, um, um, oh my goodness, what was the other one that he did? I want to say Galatians, but I don't think that's true. But but the others are, are, are other commentators, uh, and it is the best Bible commentary series that, that I've ever found by far. Um very scholarly, very well um, documented. The bibliographies are exceptional. And in fact, the bibliographies in this book will send you on your own wild goose chase. That's how, how wonderful they are. But it is a complete series on all of the New Testament um, um, books. Um, so please, 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 um, if you're only going to buy one, it's a new international Bible commentary series. Get the hard copies. They're worth the money, and it's worth the time. They were indispensable for me uh, as a new believer, and um, I wouldn't—I I just couldn't have been without them. Acts and Hebrews was the other one. Thank you very, very much. Hebrews was the other one. Thank you. So Bart F. F. Bruce is the general editor. Um, uh, There's a a commentary in 1 Corinthians. Gordon Fee is the editor. Uh, Paul Green, I think his name, who is um, a commentary on the Peter, 1 Peter um, epistle. Uh, just, Just spectacular stuff. So Bart, that's what I would do. 340-9585, here is a question that came from Ricky. Mark chapter 11, verses 23 and 24, what does he mean in the reference to the mountains? Well, Ricky, let me read the verses, and then we will talk about it. Um, It says, Jesus speaking, he says, I tell you the truth, verily, verily, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Um, This context is really important here. We can get carried away with this and start shouting at mountains. God doesn't care about mountains going into the seas. Not at all, not in the least. So here's what he's saying. Remember, Jesus' ministry was Jewish. His references were Jewish, and he was speaking to Jews. They would have gotten what he said. In Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, it says this. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now remember, Zerubbabel's job was to rebuild the temple. And and Zerubbabel was, had given up. Everybody had given up. It seemed so, so impossible. The city was destroyed. The walls were in a mess. The, the, the foundations were, were laid bare. All kinds of rubble. It just seemed an impossible task. Well, here's his word to Zerubbabel. Not by might, 
nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And then he says this, What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. So, Ricky, the reference is to an insurmountable, insurmountable problem. It's very Jewish in its reference. Um, Again, God isn't concerned about casting mountains into seas. What he's saying, and and mountain is a Jewish way of saying, you've got an impossible task, you can't do it on your own. God will do it. So, for you and for me, Ricky, New Testament believers, what's it mean? You've got an impossible marriage. You've got a child that's broken your heart. You've got a situation that seems so impossible that you just don't see how in the world you're ever going to get through it. Or you're going to get through it with Jesus. He's going to do the work. Not by might, nor by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord. So that's what it means. I know these verses have been so perverted by prosperity teachers Read the context, understand the Jewishness of Jesus' ministry, and it's one of those things that you won't be confused by, I hope. I hope that's the case. How have we got on time? By any time. Oh, let me see. Well, there's my answer. <laughs> hey, appreciate you tuning in today. By the way, uh, Vanessa Marvel's uh, Sweet Summer Devotion last night was really terrific and honored the Lord. You can go to calvaryessay.com and watch it, ladies. You'll be blessed. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You've been listening to The Word to Stand In for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.